what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to tell this story. And uh, before we enter into that time, I'd just like to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise that you made that a day would come when you wouldn't write your law on tablets of stone, but you'd write it on our hearts. Thank you for your promise that the day would come that we wouldn't dig cisterns and drink from dirty, stagnant water, but that you would offer living water. And so, Lord, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit among us, that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts, that we might be able to see Jesus for who he is, for what he offers. And Lord, that by the work of your spirit amongst us, that you might increase our faith, our hope, and our love and appreciation for him, receiving the fullness of your promises for us through him. We pray in his name and for your glory. Amen. Please be seated. So with our Holy Spirit captivated imaginations, I want to enter into this story. It's sometime in October. The fall harvest has been picked and gathered, and God's people are preparing for the great fall feast. It's called Sukkot. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's one of the main Jewish feasts that requires everyone to pilgrim to Jerusalem um, to, to celebrate for an entire week around the temple courts. If you want to look through this story, it's in John chapter 1. And in your blue Bibles, that's on page 892 and 893. The Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus doesn't want to go. He does not want to go. But his brothers do want him to go. It's a great opportunity, they say. It's a great opportunity for Jesus to be seen, to be known, to garner up some support for his cause. They want Jesus to grab the mic and to stand into the spotlight and to demonstrate that he is, in fact, Messiah because they're not even sure they believe in him yet. And Jesus doesn't appreciate the peer pressure. He says, no, I'm not going now. I'm not going because you want me to. I'm not going to be who you want me to be or do what you want me to do. I'm not going to succumb or give in to your peer pressure. Think about that. That's an extremely important aspect of Jesus's identity. And it's an extremely important aspect of our identity in Christ. 
I've been thinking about that in the season of Easter. If it is the Holy Spirit that conceives Jesus in Mary's womb, and the Holy Spirit that anoints Jesus for ministry at his baptism, and the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus to overcome temptation in the desert, and the Holy Spirit that moves through Jesus, giving him the power to do miracles and to heal and to even raise people from the dead. And it's the Holy Spirit who raises Jesus from the dead, and as Jesus promises, and as the apostles promise, for example, to the church in Rome, chapter 8, verse 11, it's the Holy Spirit who raises us with Christ and his resurrection and gives life to us. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit as Jesus did? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us as followers of Jesus who have been recipients of the promise of old that the Spirit of God would come. Jesus is our model. And what Jesus does is nothing unless the Father tells him. And whatever the Father tells him, he does. And when the Father tells him to do something, he does in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of the Father. That's what the season of Easter is all about. Remembering that we are not powerless, but that we have been given the desire and the ability and the power to do what pleases God. That it's not something external, it's something God does within us. So what does it look like? on a daily basis, not to do anything the Father doesn't tell us, but to do everything that the Father does tell us, how we can hear and obey and live life in the power of the Holy Spirit because of Christ in us and because we are in Christ. What does it mean to do just what the Father tells you to do? not because of peer pressure, not because of what people want you to do or who they want you to be, but because of who you are in Christ with the Spirit of God residing within you. Paul will emphasize this in the church in Galatia, Galatians 1.10. He says, hey, we're not trying to win the approval of people. Because if we were trying to win the approval of people, we wouldn't be servants like Christ. We wouldn't be obeying the Father. We wouldn't be living into our identity. Are we now trying to please people? Or are we trying to please God? Please God. Imitate Jesus. And with Jesus' help, do what Jesus did. Well, after his brothers leave and go to Jerusalem. Jesus does go there. He goes there by himself in secret, avoiding all the, temp- all the uh, attention. He's a, he's a good Jew, and Jews are required to go to the feast in Jerusalem, and so he goes. But he goes because of who he is not because of who others want him to be. He goes because of what the Father has called him to do. 
in a way that he's going to do it faithfully, not because of how other people want him to do it. Jesus goes because he is first and foremost an obedient servant of the Father. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the big seven celebrations uh, in Jewish life and faith. In the spring, uh, there are three feasts that are celebrated together. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And then 50 days after Passover comes Shabbat, also known as Pentecost. Just see if you're still with me. Pentecost. And then in the fall are uh, the holy days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And then these are immediately followed by the most joyous feast of all. And the only feast we see in Leviticus 23, the only feast that God commands his people to rejoice before him. The Feast of Tabernacles. Sukkot. The Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, this Feast of Tabernacles is like really incredible. It is a week-long celebration. It's like one big fiesta. Even bigger, though. It's even bigger, and more people are involved, and it's more joyful, and it's more wonderful. But the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles begins just after the fall harvest, where figs and pomegranates and dates and and grapes would have all been gathered. This is a time to be glad. This is a time to rejoice, a time to be together and to celebrate. It's like this huge, massive, week-long party. I mean, since everyone is commanded to come to Jerusalem for, for this feast, think about it. Can you see that picture in your mind's eye? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands crowd the streets of the city. And it's this great time to give thanks to God. It's a time to praise God for his provision, past, present, and future. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about remembering how God has provided in the past, specifically the manna and the quail and the water from the living rock in the desert where they desperately needed God and time and time again, God showed up and provided what they needed. But it's a time to praise and thank God for his current provision of all of the crops and all of the resources that they needed to, to live and to, um, and to enjoy life. And it was a time to celebrate that God has promised that he will one day provide for the forgiveness of their sin and the deliverance from their enemies when Messiah comes. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's this huge city party. And uh, it gets even cooler because God uh, commands them to, to live in the streets this entire week. He tells them to, to build uh, on-site on little booths or tabernacles or makeshift tents. 
And so they do. They, they make these tabernacles with olive branches and palm branches and myrtle branches. And these, these tabernacles are just everywhere. I mean, jam-packed throughout the streets. And they, uh, they, they provide shelter from the, the shade. They provide shade from the sun during the day, and they provide shelter uh, at night. So they, they sleep in these. So can you imagine what that looks like? I mean, all over, thousands and thousands of people in these little makeshift tabernacles, tents. And for seven days, the people eat and sleep and live in these tabernacles. And they praise God and rejoice and just have this incredible party. And the children love it and the parents love it. And this is the greatest time of year. And that's the scene. That's the backdrop. That's the context in which Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And it's important because as John reminds us, he's helping us see this. He's testifying to these things so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So look at John 7, 11 through 36. Jesus shows up to this great party, this incredible feast with just thousands and thousands of people in all these really cool little shelters and tents. And throughout the week, he teaches people the heart of God, who God is, who he is, what it means to be in relationship with God and with one another. And we see like in verse 31 that there are a lot of people in the crowd that believe him. I mean, after all, who else has done all these miraculous signs? He must be Messiah. We also see that he confronts the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, like in verses 28 and 29, when he says, I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true, and you don't know him. I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me but you don't know him, right? That's a, that's a big Jesus moment when he's saying, y'all are supposed to know what you're talking about, but you don't know what you're talking about. It's about me and you're missing me. I know what I'm talking about. You should listen to me. Throughout this week, they attack Jesus's character. Oh, he deceives people. He's a big fat liar. He's demon possessed. How can you listen to him? He's crazy. Throughout the week, they also debate him, debate his teaching. Yeah, how, how did you get so smart? How did you get such knowledge? You, you didn't even go to seminary. You haven't read all the right books. You haven't studied under the right people. What do you know what you're talking about? It says, particularly in verse 19, that they're so afraid and insecure and intimidated that they even plot to kill him. Now, I think about that that week. 
And I think about what's happening here. And it makes me consider, it makes me ask, Lord, will you soften my heart? Would you open my mind? Would would you help me understand and embrace your truth? Lord, I'm a mess. And there are trials and temptations that keep me from seeing you for who you are and for what you've come to do. And and I'm a mess. And there's ways that I want you to be someone that you're not and want you to do for me things that aren't as good for me as what you want to do for me. Lord, would you show me your way? Would you lead me in what really gives me life to the full? Lord, would you open my eyes and help me see you for who you really are and for what you've come to do in my life? When I contemplate this week and I, and I look at these verses in Scripture, it, it moves me to ask, Lord, search my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Show me if there's any offensive way in me. I don't want to attack you. I don't want to debate you. I want to know you. I want your forgiveness. I want your acceptance. I want a relationship with you. I want the life that you can give. Would you draw near to me and give me the faith and give me the hope and give me the love to receive and embrace you for for who you are. Love me, Lord. Teach me, Lord. Heal me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Well, there's another special aspect to the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And this uh, really important part of the Feast of Tabernacles involves clean, running, or as the Jews would say, living water. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place um, at the end of what would have been the dry season, after the harvest, and they would have been also thinking about planting seeds and growing the new crops for the coming year. And so they would be thinking of the rain that they needed uh, to start coming down immediately. Uh, The rains needed to begin to ensure a healthy harvest for the following year. So the celebration of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles is uh, coupled with uh, prayer and ceremony for next year's rain. So if you, can, if you can think about this, they're not only giving things for God's provision in the past and in the present and in the future. They are thanking God for all of the rain that has come that has enabled his provision and his harvest to come. They're praying for God to bring more rain for the coming harvest and growing season. And this prayer and these ceremonies aren't just about his physical rain. It's about him bringing spiritual rain as well. 
So what often happens in the life of of God's people is that what they are celebrating in the natural is also pointing to what they are celebrating and hoping for in the spiritual. This is the case of the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? The people know that no rain means no life. And so the priests lead a ceremony uh, and a procession uh, every day that includes this amazing prayer for rain. And this prayer, this procession, is rooted in God's promise of a coming Messiah proclaimed in Isaiah 12. In that day, says the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, you will say, I praise you, Lord. Although you were angry at me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely, God, you are my salvation. And so I will trust in you and not be afraid. Because you, Lord, you yourself are my strength and my defense. You are my shelter and hiding place, and you have become my salvation. And God says, on that day, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. You know the song. Surely it is God who saves me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. For the Lord is my stronghold and my sure defense. And he will be my savior. Therefore you shall draw water with rejoicing. From the springs of salvation. And on that day you shall say, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Those are the promises that would have grabbed and captivated the hearts of God's people, jammed into the temple courts, praising him for his past, present, and future provision. And this part of the ceremony, this water ceremony, this procession was a grand parade. It was this huge parade that was led by all the priests and it was, it was followed by people and, and, and choirs with flutes and instruments. And what would happen is that they would march out of the temple courts down to the pool of Siloam. You remember the pool of Siloam? And in the pool of Siloam, you remember uh, the pool of Siloam is fed by an active, bubbling, gushing spring of Gishon. And so they would come down to this living water, this bubbling, overflowing water. And uh, 
the, the chief priest would take this golden pitcher and dip it into the spring and fill it up with water. And then the procession would return to the temple and the procession would arrive just after the sacrifices were laid on the altar. And the priest carrying the pitcher would enter the priest's courts through the water gate and to the blast of the shofars, the trumpets, he would approach the altar and make one circle around the altar as the crowd sang and chanted the Hallel. And then the priest would climb the ramp and stand near the top of the altar. And here there are two silver funnels leading into the stone altar for the drink offering. And as the crowd grows silent, the priest would solemnly and reverently pour water into those funnels. And again, the people accompanied by the priestly choir would sing and chant the Hallel. And the sound would become so deafening because of the thousands upon thousands of pilgrims that were jammed in that space to worship God. And in this way, the people would acknowledge that it's God who provides. It's God who provides the rain, and it's God who is the source of the water, the spiritual water that they need for life. And so here they are, joyfully and reverently asking God to give them rain, but to make his promise for spiritual water come true. And that procession and water ceremony happens every day for seven days during the Feast of Tabernacles. And then on the last and the greatest day of the feast, it seems hardly possible, but the celebration becomes even more intense, even more intense as the week draws to a head. When the seventh day, the last and the greatest day of the feast arrives, the courts of the temple are absolutely jammed with worshipers. And the ceremony and the procession happens one last time. This is the culmination of the greatest feast of the year. And as hundreds of priests, along with thousands upon thousands of people, line up in the temple courts to process down to the pool of Siloam, they are chanting, Hosanna, deliver us, save us. And they go down to the pool of Siloam and the pit, the priest, the chief priest takes that golden picture and he dips it into the spring of living water and they march back through the water gate into the temple courts. Hosanna, deliver us, save us. The crowd's going wild. This is the height of the party. This is the, the center of their identity as the people of God, the greatest festival of the entire year. 
And as they're chanting and shouting and worshiping the Lord, the priest circles the altar seven times this day, remembering the walls of Jericho, which finally fall after seven circuits because of God's great promise and power. Then comes three blasts from the trumpets, from the shofars, and the crowd grows still. The crowd gets really quiet. Their hearts are completely captured. You could hear a pin drop in the temple courts that day. And as the priest climbs up and takes that pitcher of water and begins pouring it into the funnels... Jesus stands up and in a very loud voice interrupts the most holiest of moments of the entire feast. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures teach, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He's saying the purpose of the feast is all about me. I am the God who saves you. Trust in me and don't be afraid. I'm your stronghold. I'm your sure defense. I'm your shelter and your mighty tower. And I am your savior. You shall draw water from me because I am the spring of salvation. Jesus is claiming to be Messiah. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit whom he will give to come and fill and bubble up to overflowing from within the hearts of everyone who turns and trusts and believes in him And the promise will be fulfilled on that day. You will say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We call upon your name. Jesus dramatically presents the message of the kingdom and identifies himself as the king on that day. In the midst of the crowds and the tabernacles and the water ceremony and the parade and the chanted prayers and the singing and the plea for living water, Jesus stands and says, if you want spiritual life, come to me. Can you imagine that? 
Jesus ruined the most joyful and holiest festival of the year. He was that guy. In that holiest of moments, he stands up and turns everybody's attention to himself. And in the midst of the entire gathering of Israel claims to be their savior. And no one lays a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Does he ruin it? Or is it that he is fulfilling it? The importance of Jesus' self-declaration taking place on the last and the greatest day of this feast celebrating God's provision cannot be exaggerated. This is huge. And it gives Jesus the context to make a powerful declaration of who he is and what he's come to do regardless of what other people want him to be or do. Think about it. Take the most joyful celebration that ever existed and imagine it lasting forever. Forever. That's what Jesus is promising for those who will trust in him. On the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus, the word of God, who made his tent among us, who tabernacled among us, proclaims that it's all about him. This is what the scriptures have promised and that he is the true source of life and provision. And so we can debate Jesus. We can dismiss Jesus. Or we can believe in our hearts and declare with our lips that Jesus is Messiah. The source of life and salvation. It's his invitation to us today. An invitation we're going to celebrate as we come to him around the table this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your story, for writing us into it, for the incredible author that you are. And we thank you that you're not only the author of our life, but you're the author of our salvation. And so as we come to you around the table of your son, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us? Would you, in your mercy, allow your living water to well up in our hearts and to give us life as your people? Mercifully direct and rule our hearts, Lord. Give us the desire and the ability to love and serve you above all else and equip us to live the gospel of Jesus. That we might not only enjoy your provision, but that we might share it with others as well. We ask in the name of your Son, our Messiah and Savior. Amen.